Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Here we are at midweek. It seems like it's been a full week already with all the news that's going on, and we have plenty to talk about today. Big meeting yesterday in the White House on the RFS. We got some answers, but uh, there's still questions as well. We'll assess all this, kind of analyze what took place, what is, is coming out of that meeting, where we go from here. Scott Irwin, University of Illinois Ag Economist, will join us a little bit later on with his analysis. Also, uh, coming up on the program today, we'll get a planting update in the St. Joseph, Missouri area. Gene Millard will join us. And we're going to take a look today at this growing trend towards plant-based foods. And we're going to talk with Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity, and what this means for production agriculture moving forward. But right now, to talk about the news, we're joined by the Ag Policy Editor for DTN, Chris Clayton, who is in Washington, D.C. Chris, uh, Quite a meeting yesterday at the White House. Uh, everyone's trying to figure out who won, who lost, who gained, and what they didn't gain, and trying to figure out some things going forward. So, as I said, there were some answers. There were some positives but for the renewable fuels industry, but still some questions as well. Yeah, uh, a great many questions coming out of this, um, you know, starting with uh, E15, um, just basically when would this process begin? Um if you don't do something right now, for instance, um, you know, anybody who sells E15 has to stop by June 1st because that's the whole issue with the uh, uh, EF, uh, E15 and the reed vapor pressure waiver, et cetera, is you have to stop selling it over the summer. So would, would Scott Pruitt, give the EPA administrator, give some sort of emergency waiver to allow continue selling E15 this summer? If he doesn't do that, if he goes through the old rulemaking process, then you're then you're at least a year off from from having E15, probably even liker uh, longer, uh, because of the time it takes to uh, draft rules, to do the comment periods, and all that stuff that goes with it. So just on that part alone, how fast would they implement year-round E15? Yeah, that's the big question. First question. Yeah, because that that's the big positive that the renewable fuels industry uh, got from this seemingly, and that is the uh, year-round sales of E15. But as you said, we don't know when that starts. Now, uh, when we look at the the REN situation, no REN cap, but now there's this talk about uh, RENs being applied to ethanol exports, and that has uh, the renewable fuels industry very concerned. Yeah, it, it, you're, you're talking about an, an export subsidy. That's really what that would translate into, and that's the way that everybody else around the world who sells or buys uh, biofuels would, would take a look at and, and interpret that issue. So it raises a lot of questions, uh, not just for, uh, for – because we always talk about ethanol and biodiesel, but there are products made like called methanol and others that are exported out of this country. China has this investment in, uh, in Louisiana, for instance, on a methanol plant. So do you give RINs for products like that, um, you know, for export? Or is it strictly for ethanol for export, et cetera? And even then, other countries are going to call us out on this as, a, uh, as an export subsidy. 
Right, and if they retaliate, they're going to retaliate back against the ethanol industry, and uh, no one wants to see that. So, And then also, uh, what impact does that have on the domestic uh, uh, you know, consumption usage of ethanol. If the emphasis goes to exports with the with the rent credits, uh, what does that do to the, to the uh, domestic industry? So there are a lot of questions there. Yeah, and you know we're we're so fixated right now just on these debate issues with the RFS that I, I think sometimes they're taking the eye off the ball on future growth and development. Um, I just was interviewing a, one of the leaders in the RFS uh, last night, and his focus was like, we really need to be looking in the ethanol industry of just how to drive octane changes. You know, you look at the octane numbers that you receive, and if we were having higher blends of ethanol, we would be much higher octane than fuels, and that would be the real game changer for, uh, for ethanol demand. We wouldn't be so fixated just on these RFS issues all the time. And then, Chris, another question has come out of this. Uh, when we look at the the loss or the damage done to the RFS by granting of these waivers to refineries by EPA, then there's talk about can you go back and reallocate those gallons? Uh, that's another big question. Yeah, and EPA was also already tied up in a court. There was already a court decision um, going back to, um, this gets really into the weeds, but there was a court decision against EPA on this, somewhat on this issue of uh, ethanol fuel volumes from 2013, 14, and 15, or excuse me, 14, 15, and 16. And if you're given these waivers, do you are you able to allocate those back to the 16 fuel volumes? It gets so much into the weeds on, on this, but hopefully at least for 17, 18, and beyond that this kind of stops this, uh, this whole issue of granting all these waivers, that hopefully out of the meeting at least it takes away some of EPA's, uh, you know, not necessarily authority, but basically uh, ability to continue granting these waivers as they've done uh, moving ahead, because that's where the real damage would occur, I think, is if you're allowed to keep, they keep doing this for 17, 18, 19 volumes, then you're, you've really got a lot of uh, cheap RINs out on the market, because the companies already have the RINs, and they're dumping them back out once they get the waivers. So anyone who thought uh, that meeting yesterday was going to bring finality to the, uh, the, the debate and the issue, uh, probably uh, now seeing that that was not the case, uh, and I think most of us suspected that, that that would not bring finality to it. There are many more questions that need to be answered on this issue. Hey, meanwhile, Chris, uh, before we let you go, now the president is weighing in on the farm bill, so that's going to get interesting, too. Yeah, he wants to ensure that there are these uh, works requirements for SNAP and the Farm Bill and, and toughening on that. Um, this is the big debate and fight right now in the House of Representatives. Democrats look like they're pretty much going to vote in block against the Farm Bill. Uh, because of that, if uh, he weighs in on that, it's also going to shore up um, opposition among Senate Democrats and even Senator Pat Roberts, uh, chairman of the House or Senate Ag Committee, understands he can't get a farm bill passed unless it's bipartisan. 
he has to have support from Democrats in the Senate. So the president weighing in and putting his foot down on this situation actually will complicate the farm bill even more in the Senate than uh, than you might already expect. Interesting times, and uh, we'll follow your reporting at DTN. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you, and have a good uh, rest of the week, Mike. You too. Chris Clayton, Ag Policy Editor for DTN. More on that RFS situation and what came out of that White House meeting uh, yesterday a little bit later in today's program with Scott Irwin from the University of Illinois. But coming up next, the move, the popularity, the growing trend towards plant-based foods. We're going to talk about it with Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. That's coming up next on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Hey, welcome back. There seems to be this growing trend towards plant-based foods. And Starbucks has announced that uh, they have a whole line of plant-based beverages that will be coming out this summer here in the U.S. They say they've been testing those beverages with great success. I want to talk about this trend with Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. Charlie, thanks for joining us. What do you make of this uh, plant-based uh, trend that seems to be going on now? Well, Mike, it's, it's interesting to, to watch and see how things are unfolding, and it's, it's a little early to be able to determine, is this a fad or is it a trend? Uh, we've clearly seen trends in things like uh, greater interest in the relationship between diet and health, uh, cleaner labels, uh, fewer additives, the increase in absence label claims, the free from claims. And we're beginning to see this now emergence of greater plant-based products, whether they be meats or beverages, et cetera. And I think we're still a little early to determine whether or not this is going to be a trend or a fad. But I think it is interesting that you see companies like Starbucks and Tyson and Smithfield and others uh, beginning to invest in this space. And I think that's an important signal and, uh, and a signal for agriculture to pay attention to in terms of where is this moving? Uh, how quickly will it get there? What's the likelihood of it having greater impact? Uh, I think we're still in the early stages of that, but I think it is clearly something that we need to not take for granted because clearly there's enough momentum behind this uh, to indicate that there is some significant interest in determining what will the future be of plant-based products, be they beverages or be they meat. Yeah, what is the potential impact of this, Charlie? Well, I think it's going to be interesting to, to, to see. I, I, I don't think there's a great likelihood that anybody is going to replace, um, you know, the flavor and the smell and the texture of a great steak on the grill. I mean, I just I don't see how that's possible. Uh, but are there opportunities for plants to replace some of the lower value proteins or some of the products that are already produced in other ways? Clearly, there will be uh, a group of people that, for uh, philosophical reasons or social reasons, believe that this is the right thing to do. And they will move in that direction. But that's a very small group. Uh, the percentage of Americans who claim to be vegetarians really hasn't changed much over the years, between 6 and 9% pretty consistently in our surveys over the last decade. But those who are greater, more concerned about the impact on the environment, uh, impact on health, that segment continues to grow. And it grows both in millennials as well as boomers. And so it will be interesting to watch and see how many of them move toward plant-based products not because they have some deep philosophical alignment with that position, but because they believe it's actually better for them. 
and what will that ha- when will that happen if it happens and over what period of time. So I think the opportunity for those that are involved in, in livestock production and in agriculture is to really make sure we're having that conversation on an ongoing basis about the great nutritional value of the products that are produced today, about the nutrient density of beef and pork and chicken, uh, the affordability, and then, of course, the, the wide range of ways they can be prepared and served. So I think that it is something to pay attention to. It will be something that we'll see uh, continue to expand. I think at what level is what people are, are trying to determine at this point. But I think it's, it's clearly there's enough interest and enough activity that those in agriculture need to pay attention to it and make sure they're engaging in the conversation to help consumers understand the great nutritional benefits and uh, the, the nutrient profile of the products that are in the market today. Yeah, you just can't ignore it, that's for sure. We're talking with Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. Now, Starbucks Executive Chairman Howard Schultz recently said, I think there's no doubt that people are looking for 100% transparency in what they're eating and what they're consuming. If that transparency on any level is not accurate, is not truthful, the game is over. Well, we've been talking about uh, the need for transparency for some time and, and, and realizing, Charlie, that consumers are wanting more transparency on their food. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. It is, it is an expectation, and I, I agree with, with the Starbucks executive there. I think it is a basic expectation, and that's one of the things that agriculture, I think, needs to do a better job of embracing, and I get it. I understand the concern that those at the point of production have about what does that actually mean what do you want to know about my operation? How much information am I going to be required to share? And there isn't a, a desire to hide anything on farms. It's just that people in agriculture and rural areas have generally been brought up to be relatively private. Uh, we don't talk a lot about what we do. We don't share a lot of information. We don't want to brag. And so we simply haven't shared a lot of information and, and talked in a way that, that might be perceived as being more transparent. We're actually working with the Food Marketing Institute, which is the trade association for grocery retailers, on creating a transparency index, an actual tool that will help retailers uh, be, become more transparent and demand more transparency from their supply chain. So I think the opportunity exists today for those in agriculture to be engaged in this conversation and begin to define what constitutes transparency at an acceptable level. The challenge always is, Mike, if you wait too long and you wait until somebody else defines it for you, then you have little opportunity to really kind of be in the game and determine what this outcome is going to be. So if, you, if we really believe that the transparency ship has sailed, and I do believe that, then I think now is the time for agriculture to really be much more engaged in that conversation, proactive in that conversation, and begin to define what constitutes transparency for agriculture, what kind of information are we willing to share, and how do we share that in a way that will be meaningful and authentic, as the chair of, of Starbucks indicated. Now, meanwhile, labeling is back in the news. The FDA this week issued uh, their long-awaited final guidance that will aid restaurants and other food establishments to meet the requirements of the menu labeling rule, which took effect Monday. And that is kind of a part of the, it's a it's a obscure part of Obamacare, actually, this uh, implementing of national menu labeling. What impact do you see this having, if any? Well, I hope that it will begin to, to drive the issue off the table. Um, you know, one of the things that you, hindsight's always, always twenty twenty. Uh, had we known that the whole GMO debate was going to become so contentious and so acrimonious and detrimental to agriculture and branded food companies alike, uh, we might have approached things very differently from the beginning. Uh, Brazil labeled everything from the get-go, and it's a non-issue in Brazil. There's a little icon on the back of a package that indicates that this package may contain genetically modified food ingredients. 
And because it's on virtually everything in the center of the store, it's just not a big deal. So my hope is that once the labels come on and people begin to see them on many of the products they use and have used every single day for decades, they'll shrug their shoulders and go, well, okay, I guess that's okay. Um, there will clearly be those who want to continue to not use GMOs, and that's fine. That's certainly their choice. But my hope is that this level of transparency and increased information sharing, because the labels will be so common on so many products, it will become a non-issue, and we can move on to things that are actually much more important. So USDA proposing all these labels or scanner codes that wouldn't say GMOs, they want to go with bioengineered or something like that, that kind of get gets back to the negative connotation that the term GMO has. It could, it could, although GMO has such baggage today that, that anything except GMO is probably a good good effort. Uh, bioengineered, again, I think, you know, we've kind of lost that language debate around this topic, and so we're going to have to go with whatever we go with. I think the key, for at least from, from my perspective, is when it becomes so common and it's on virtually every product that people are buying, it becomes much less of an issue. The non-GMO project has made um, significant dollars, and branded food companies are, are clearly uh, focusing on that as a way to differentiate non-GMO. And again, that's fine for those who want those products, but for the majority of consumers, uh, having the information and making it available to them will help provide a level of assurance and confidence that whatever they're buying, it's okay. It's always a challenge, Charlie, for those in production agriculture to uh, kind of deal with all this because you don't know what is a real trend or, as you said, a fad. You don't know when a food company is just trying to take advantage of what they see as a marketing opportunity. Uh, what is a very minor market segment that gets a lot of attention, or is it potentially going to be a bigger market trend? It's hard to sort through all that, especially early on. It really is, Mike, and, and things change so fast today uh, in terms of the retail landscape as retailers are looking for any potential competitive advantage uh, with, with the purchase of Whole Foods by Amazon, uh, with Walmart getting much more involved in online shopping and, and the dramatic changes and disruption that's taking place at food retail, and retailers now becoming branded food companies themselves, everybody's looking for any potential competitive advantage. And it's frustrating for farmers because they're really not engaged in that conversation. Uh, they end up having to simply be the take, take, take the whatever orders are given to them by the rest of the supply chain, which is understandably frustrating. So that's part of our reality today, but I think the other opportunity then exists for us to be much more engaged in that conversation and to really begin to position what's happening in agriculture as transparent and consistent with consumer expectations. Yeah, it can be looked at as a negative, but you can look at it as a positive. If you take the opportunity, you know, consumers asking these questions to provide them with the answers and, and tell agriculture's story. Charlie, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Mike, always a pleasure. Take care. Take care. Charlie Arnott, CEO for the Center for Food Integrity. Always interesting to try to, to gauge these uh, trends or, as he said, what may be a fad. And, you know, they, some of them get a lot of attention and maybe not that many people are actually interested in them, but it sounds like more are. But some can be real and it can impact uh, how people uh, uh, purchase food and what they're looking for and it impacts the producers. So you have to keep an eye on all of that. Well, we're trying to sort through all this that came out of that White House meeting yesterday on the RFS. As we mentioned earlier, still a lot of questions. We're going to try to get some answers from University of Illinois ag economist Scott Irwin. His analysis of that meeting coming up next on AOA Adams on Agriculture.
I'm Mike Lindell, the inventor of my pillow. And like all of you out there, I had problems sleeping. Pillows would go flat. I would flip-flop all night long. I'd wake up with a sore neck or maybe a headache, or I'd feel like I needed a nap even though I slept eight hours. Well, when I invented my pillow, I wanted it so you could adjust the patented fill to give you the exact support you need as an individual, regardless of sleep position. My pillow will get you into that deep REM sleep faster, and you will stay there longer. It's not how much time we spend in bed. It's how much of that quality sleep we get. I do all my own manufacturing in my home state of Minnesota with a 10-year warranty, and you can wash and dry my pillow. And here's my best offer ever. Get four my pillows for the price of one. That's right. Get four my pillows, two premium pillows, and two travel pillows for the price of one. Order my pillow at 800-871-7280 and use promo code FARM11. Get four my pillows for the price of one. Call 800-871-7280 and use promo code FARM11. Go to MyPillow.com and at checkout, use promo code FARM11. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Grain and soybean futures in a narrow mix early on this Wednesday trading session. Traders said to be positioning for USDA's monthly supply-demand report that comes out on Thursday. The numbers expected to show a reduction in global grain stocks due to falling production estimates out of South America and the U.S. The soybean surplus, though, is expected to grow. July soybeans rebounded to a modestly firmer close on Tuesday as the market consolidated on a tight inside day. We've been mixed early on this Wednesday. Yesterday's action representing minor backing and filling following the swift and severe sell-off early week. July soybeans rebounding above the 200-day moving average on Tuesday. That's a modestly encouraging sign. July beans an hour into the trading day hovering around 1018 and three quarters down a penny and a half. In corn, July up a fraction at 404. We see support at 397 and a quarter, a target for the bulls at 423. For the wheats, Minneapolis, July down a penny and a half at 612 and a half. September down two and a quarter, 618 and three quarters. Two and a fraction lower in Kansas City wheat to three lower in Chicago wheat. Livestock at the Merck and live cattle futures on a Wednesday. Trending in a mix, 25 cents on either side of steady. Cash cattle buying interest should begin to improve at midweek with opening bids around 190 to 192 in the north, 120 on a live basis in the south. Lean hog futures trending steady to 55 cents higher. Cash market being called steady to a dollar higher. Outside markets on Wall Street, the Dow up 36, NASDAQ up 15, S&P up 9, June crude oil up $1.90. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson for the American Ag Network. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. Some other interesting items in the news. The Trump administration wants to cut nearly $1 billion from the USDA budget as part of an expansive Proposal to cut $15.4 billion in unspent prior year budget dollars. That's a report from Politico. USDA agencies like the U.S. Forest Service, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, and the Rural Housing Service were targeted in a 41-page request that the, the White House Office of Management, uh, Management Budget uh, released as a special message uh, yesterday. So we'll see how that plays out. Most of the White House requests affect money that has been authorized but has not been spent. 
the proposed USDA cuts are part of a bigger package of spending cuts that would go through about 10 federal departments. So uh, that's something to keep an eye on. Meanwhile, appropriators yesterday released fiscal 2019 spending legislation for USDA and FDA. The bill calls for $23 billion in discretionary funding for the two departments. That is $14 million higher than the 2018 uh, level. And meanwhile, the battle continues, the work behind the scenes, if you will, on the farm bill in the House. Ag Committee Chair Mike Conaway said yesterday, Republican lawmakers have enough information about the proposal to make up their minds, and he's willing to make changes to the bill to win over support. He's been uh, looking to bring the bill to the floor perhaps next week, but uh, they're still trying to get the... all factions of the Republican Party together because they're not going to get support from the Democrats. So they got to make sure they have the Republican uh, side firmed up and they're still working on that. All right. Joining us now is Scott Irwin, University of Illinois ag economist, who um, has had some interesting analysis. If you follow him on uh, Twitter, as I do, you've seen his analysis of that meeting yesterday at the White House. And, Scott, I, I said earlier, for anyone who thought uh, that meeting yesterday would bring finality to this issue, they were sadly mistaken because we have a lot of questions that came out of that meeting. Um, exactly. Uh, I think the big picture uh, for your listeners to keep in mind, Mike, is that there are really two things that I think ultimately really matter. Uh, one, how you view the overall outcome of what came out of the meeting uh, depends on two things. One, uh, what is your view on the prospects for expanding E15 use uh, due to the year-round RVP waiver? You know, are you really optimistic? Are you more skeptical? So that really weights how you view the outcome. And the other is is this issue of what's the EPA going to do with the two starting with the 2019 RVO rulemaking with regard to this question of reallocating uh, exempted gallons from small refiners to the large refiners. Those are the two things that I think are most important and color your view of the entire meeting. Yeah, the, the White House says they're done with the issue, but there's a lot of work still to be done. We're waiting for details on how this is going to play out. Exactly. Uh, you know, uh, as Senator Grassley said yesterday, the devil's in the details. Uh, we already know that the petroleum industry is probably going to challenge uh, any administrative move to uh, go to a year-round RVP waiver that will allow year-round uh, E15 sales. So, you know, the courts will be involved there. Uh, we don't know exactly how the EPA intends to handle this reallocation question. And then there are a bunch of issues swirling around this apparent idea to allow RIN generation for exports of ethanol. So there's just a lot of uncertainty. Okay, let's delve into some of that. Let's let's start with the the export situation, because the renewable fuels industry very concerned about this. What does it do to the uh, domestic market? Also, how vulnerable does that make us to uh, retaliation by other countries? And we've seen, you know, when you get in these trade disputes, uh, that makes ethanol even more vulnerable. Um, give us your thoughts on RENs for export. Well, number one, um, this seems to me to be an idea that should, deserves a quick death. 
because uh, the RFS is clearly, and it's been affirmed by a U.S. Uh, federal appeals court, the RFS is a technology-forcing domestic blend mandate. And if you allow eth- ethanol that's exported to generate a RIN that clearly is not blended in the domestic fuel supply, that's a strike at the heart of the congressional intent on the RFS. So therefore, I do not see why it's being considered or how it would not, how it could withstand a very quick court challenge. The precedent is there. And then on top of that, um, uh, the situation with regard to trade, uh, it would be what my mom used to say is the, you know, pot calling the kettle black, that if we're going to go after Argentina for dumping of biodiesel because of their differential uh, export tax rates for biodiesel, what's the difference for us attaching a RIN to exported ethanol, which clearly should lower the price? It's just a different form economically of dumping so that it just invites WTO cases and, again, as you said, uh, potential trade retaliation by our competitors. So that one is an unusually bad idea, uh, both legally and economically. And like I said, I, I really think it deserves to die a quick death. We're talking with University of Illinois Ag Economist Scott Irwin. All right, let's look at this reallocation uh, issue, looking to get back uh, what was lost through these uh, RFS waivers that have been granted. Uh, how do you see that working, and what's the significance of that possibility anyway? That's a this is that's a big issue, Mike. It really is because let's just throw out a number. Let's say in 2018, the small refinery exemptions amount to a billion gallons of ethanol. Um, that's that's not going to be used because it's exempted, and they didn't change the rules after the exemptions were granted. I believe all that is actually legal. Uh, but the key question then is, when they do the 2019 rules, are they going to project? those billion gallons in the formulas or not. Uh, It's very clear from the pronouncements uh, yesterday that the large refiners have been led to believe that the exempted gallons for the small refiners would not be reallocated to them. They're already starting to scream. But I think that Scott Pruitt and his team opened the door uh, to they may have to do that because they're in a really boxed in on that because EPA rulemaking up to this point is very, very clear that you're to project those um, small refinery exemptions and reallocate. They've, they've been doing that. That's the procedure regulatory that's well established for six or seven years. So if they're not going to do that, if they're going to zero that out, which would be bad for biofuels and ag, they will have to then come up with some kind of argument for why, in other words, they'll have to be able to justify that, gee, we've just given one, one and a half or two billion gallons of small refinery exemptions for 16, 17, and 18. But when we make the 2019 rules, we're just going to pretend that we weren't doing that and we don't have to take that into account. I think their lawyer said, you can't get away with that. And so I think on this one that that um, the precedent is clearly on the side of reallocation, 
And if I'm right, you'll begin to hear a lot of screaming out of the large refiners. Wow. I mean, just so many questions. As I said, for a meeting that was supposed to give us a lot of clarity and answers, we seem to have even more questions. Um, I want to go back to the E15 waiver. You've said before that that alone, while it, it, it's what the renewable fuels industry wants to see and it sounds good, that alone you don't think it really solves the issue? No. Uh, there's, you know, On its own, right now, the economics of blending E15 versus E10 are not favorable. Uh, to have any hope of expanding E15, you also have to have very high rinse prices. Uh, the combination of small refinery exemptions, uh, lowering, um, you know, excuse me, uh, rising crude oil and diesel and gasoline prices have made that situation um, where the rinse prices are, are dropping even, even further. So the overall environment is not favorable for uh, expanding E15. And plus, it requires big parts of the petroleum industry to make some investments uh, to get that rolling. So to me, I, I'm, a, I'm an E15 skeptic at the present time. Uh, you know, uh, I don't, I'm not a, an executive, and I don't have all the information that, that they do, because clearly the biofuels industry is really enthused about this. But I would also point out that the... Uh, Cleveland Browns were very excited about every one of the number one draft picks they used on quarterbacks that turned out to be busts. <laughs> so people can be wrong. And uh, so that's why, you know, I'm just, I, I think that there will be, it will be helpful in expanding. So I don't want to, you know, give people the wrong imp um, uh, impression. It, it, it can be an incremental help, um, but, um, seems to me that that was a putting an awful lot of eggs in the E15 baskets for all the other things that, that have been on the table. Well, it impacts a lot of people, ethanol producers, farmers, rural communities, um, anyone driving and purchasing fuel. I mean, this impacts uh, really about everyone, so it's an important issue. And, Scott, we'll continue to watch your analysis uh, of this, and as we get more information, hopefully we'll get some more answers to these questions. Thanks for being with us. Uh, always a pleasure, Mike. University of Illinois Ag Economist Scott Irwin. All right, coming up next, I want to circle back to St. Joseph, Missouri, see about planting conditions there. They've got a lot done. They needed rain last time we talked with Gene Millard. Did they get that rain? If so, how much? What's their situation? That's next on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Around 3500 BC, someone used basic tools and slabs of wood to invent the wheel. Genius. In 1879, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Genius. In 1899, a Norwegian with degrees in electronics, science, and mathematics invented the paperclip. Genius. There's genius, and then there's pure genius. At BASF, that's what drove us to develop Ingenia herbicide, our most advanced dicamba formulation ever for dicamba-tolerant cotton and soybeans. It gives you a low-volatility solution at the lowest dicamba use rate ever offered, providing an additional site of action to outsmart the toughest weeds, even the glyphosate-resistant ones. Grow smart with Ingenia herbicide from BASF, a flexible solution that's pure genius. Talk to your representative today. Learn more at ingeniaherbicide.com. BASF, we create chemistry. 
Engenia herbicide is a U.S. EPA-restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow label directions. Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, the inventor of my pillow. And like all of you out there, I had problems sleeping. Pillows would go flat. I would flip-flop all night long. I'd wake up with a sore neck or maybe a headache, or I'd feel like I needed a nap even though I slept eight hours. Well, when I invented my pillow, I wanted it so you could adjust the patented fill to give you the exact support you need as an individual, regardless of sleep position. My pillow will get you into that deep REM sleep faster, and you will stay there longer. It's not how much time we spend in bed. It's how much of that quality sleep we get. I do all my own manufacturing. Manufacturing my home state of Minnesota, a 10-year warranty, and you can wash and dry my pillow. And here's my best offer ever: get four my pillows for the price of one. That's right, get four my pillows, two premium pillows and two travel pillows for the price of one. Order my pillow at 800-871-7280 and use promo code FARM11. Get four my pillows for the price of one. Call 800-871-7280 and use promo code FARM11. Go to mypillow.com and at checkout use promo code FARM11. In 1847, Hanson Crockett Gregory invented the donut. Genius. In 1908, Melita Benz invented the paper coffee filter. Genius. In 1928, Otto Frederick Rowetter invented sliced bread. Genius. In 1930, Ruth Wakefield invented the chocolate chip cookie. Mmm, genius. There's genius, and then there's pure genius. At BASF, that's what drove us to develop Ingenia Herbicide, our most advanced dicamba formulation ever for dicamba-tolerant cotton and soybeans. It gives you a low-volatility solution at the lowest dicamba use rate ever offered, providing an additional site of action to outsmart the toughest weeds, even the glyphosate-resistant ones. Grow smart with Ingenia Herbicide from BASF, a flexible solution that's pure genius. Talk to your representative today. Learn more at IngeniaHerbicide.com. BASF, we create chemistry. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA-restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, we've been checking around with farmers in several states, uh, getting an update on planting. Last time we talked with Gene Millard in St. Joseph, Missouri, it was very, very dry. Gene, have you had any rain lately? Uh, we got three little showers. Uh, the sum total over three days was about an inch and a tenth. And that was not what you call a frog strangler. Nothing ran off. Uh, it, it did get enough moisture to where, you know, the corn and beans that were planted, you know, got enough moisture to pop through and got a good sand. We're just, we're just living from one little shower to the next right now. Mm-hmm. So how do things look? How far along are you? And obviously you're done with corn. How far along with planting, uh, with beans? Uh, I, you know, we're getting towward 75% done with soybean planting. Uh, I think that is probably close to average around the area. There's been a ton of planting done the last 10 days. We only had a couple of days that were little rain outs there last week with those little rain showers that were anywhere from two tenths inch, but uh, it was so dry it, it really didn't uh, take too long to get back in the field. Challenges with pasture, right? Uh, yes, grass short, short, short. Uh, interesting. Uh, good friend uh, that lives over on Kirksville, northeast Missouri. That's the other side of the state. Uh, had an exotic uh, longhorn uh, for sale, and I t- text back and said, does hay, bale of hay come with it? And she said, absolutely <laughs> not. They are absolutely uh, out of hay over there, too, and grass is just slow, so slow coming on because uh, the temperatures were so cold early. I noticed the other day some, 
some orchard grass was already starting to head, and it wasn't knee-high. And that's kind of scary. It's going to be kind of a short hay crop, I'm afraid, and we're kind of rotating cows around to various paddocks to, to you know, keep keep everything growing. We're talking with Gene Miller, who farms near St. Joseph, Missouri. Uh, Gene, you, like a lot of areas, have really had challenges with wind this spring. It, it makes it hard for spraying, but a lot of other ways, too, it impacts you. Well, you know, the wind just was really galing earlier this week. I think it was 30, 40 miles an hour. And uh, it makes it tough to even when you're, you know, doing a, a, fit, a drill fill or a planter fill, bulk planter fill, it's hard to, you know, make sure that you get the... Uh, the, the soybeans that are sprayed around up there on top that they they don't interrupt the seal of your of your uh, lid on the on the no-till planter so it's uh it, it's just been hard to get the spray done we i thought we were at least a week late in getting our uh termination done on uh, cover crop uh, you know we only have i don't know two or three hundred acres of rye but it needed to be killed a week ago and it finally got in with the sprayer saturday when the wind went down so it's been hard to find days that you can really go out and, and spray day after day. So plenty of challenges, but uh, are you getting pretty good emergence, pretty good stand, it looks like, on that corn yeah. that's been planted? Well, I think I think we got an absolutely perfect stand of corn. I have not seen anybody that was complaining about the sands that are out there, and the soybeans are popping right through. Uh, we had just enough rain to really put a little crust if you'd worked around any at all, but uh, the beans are popping right through that. It wasn't a hard downpour. It's strange, though, that the river levels of Missouri River is running really high. And there's reports here this week that the Corps of Engineers still hasn't got the drift. Uh, they hadn't figured out that it snowed in Montana. And so the release of the Gavin's Point Dam is, is increasing daily. And the river here is running almost at flood stage and expected to stay high all the way through June. Well, if there's any kind of heavy rain, if, you know, we don't know, nobody knows, but if that happens, uh, there could be some flooding concerns along the Missouri River bottom. I know the guys are already talking about it. Yeah. So flooding in those areas while you're talking about needing the next rain. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's highly probable that uh, there could be flooding, which has happened before, in the Missouri River bottom when we didn't have a drop of rain. It all comes from the north. Yeah. The Platte River the other day was running, you know, bank full here, and we had a quarter of an inch of rain. But it rained hard up in a little section of south-central Iowa. And so that water all came downstream, and it ends up hitting the Missouri River down there, Platte City, Missouri. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, going to be an interesting evolution of time. But right now, you know, we're great to have everything pretty well planted in great shape, mellow conditions. Uh, it just gets a little dusty. We're looking for that next 40% chance. Hey, before we let you go, you're in the ethanol business, have been for some time. Um, yep. We keep talking about this RFS situation and and RINs and waivers. Uh, uh, what's your take on all this that's going on and how it impacts you at a local ethanol plant? Well, I'm not sure that we know exactly how it's going to shake out yet because it's uh, it's said to be uh, satisfying to uh, Ted Cruz. Well, that bothers me a little bit, uh, being from the oil patch that he is. Uh, we're concerned that that the E15 thing, it, it'll take time for that to evolve. Uh, Mike, by the way, we have a new uh, service station right here in St. Joe, right at the major intersection, I-29. They have an E20 pump, 
but no E15. I look at my fuel cap on my car, and it says up to E15. So I don't know why they're putting in an E20 pump, but uh, E15 would certainly help. The volume uh, takes some of the pressure off. Um, there's there's really not much margin in, in the ethanol plants right now, so, you know, penny here, penny there make a big difference. So it's uh, kind of disgusting that a billion-dollar company can get a hardship uh, I don't think that quite qualifies. I, I yeah. applaud Senator Grassley for trying to figure out what is a hardship. And Senator Grassley is going to be on with us on Monday, by the way. We'll be talking about this. Well, Gene, glad to hear you got some rain, and uh, uh, we'll stay in touch and hope things keep moving along in good shape for you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for calling, Mike. Mike. Take care. Gene Miller, who farms in the St. Joseph, Missouri area. All right, coming up tomorrow, more reaction on this RFS situation from Bob Deneen with the Renewable Fuels Association. We're going to get some, also get some market analysis and outlook uh, from Sterling Liddell with Robo Research. That's coming up tomorrow. And we're going to talk with uh, folks at the American Farmland Trust. They're releasing an assessment uh, on the loss of U.S. farmland and ranch land. They're calling it Farms Under threat and they say the loss of farmland is serious and will accelerate unless action is taken so we're going to uh, talk with the american farmland trust tomorrow get some of the details and findings in this report and uh, on the loss of farmland in the u.s so hope you'll join us for that thanks for being with us today have a great day everyone you're listening to aoa adams on agriculture Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, immigration reform, reducing regulations, trade, new technology, as well as infrastructure and health care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. We're proud of our new affiliates. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network.